Bienvenidos a Crónicas de la Raza. Welcome to La Raza Chronicles. On tonight's program, we focus on solidarity, specifically looking at how groups all over the country are connecting to groups internationally to stop police military repression. First, we focus on the work happening here in the Bay to stop Urban Shield, a SWAT team training and weapons expo that brings together local, regional, and international police to collaborate on new forms of surveillance and repression. We then speak to Olga Talamante, who is the executive director of the Chicana Latina Foundation, but also is a survivor of state-sponsored torture in Argentina, the perpetrators of which were trained by the U.S. government through Plan Condor. So La Rosa Chronicles will bring you conversations around solidarity to address state repression locally and internationally, and we also bring you music to keep you going and energized as we resist. Muchas gracias por estar con nosotros. Stay tuned. You're listening to La Raza Chronicles, Cronicas de la Raza. I have on the line with me uh, Mohamed Sheikh. He is with Critical Resistance. He is talking to us about something really important and very urgent. Thank you, Mohamed, for joining us. Yeah, thank you for having me. So, um, Mohamed, we're really concerned about Urban Shield, but why don't you take a step back and just break down what is the relationship between Urban Shield and police and what impact can it have on our communities? Yeah, so what Urban Shield is a annual weapons expo and police SWAT training that is very highly militarized. Um, it takes place in the Bay Area. It's hosted by the Alameda County Sheriff's Department, and it involves policing agencies as well as, you know, first responders such as fire and EMTs that brings together these agencies from across the Bay Area primarily, but also from across the country and even includes international military units. And so they hold this training where they have war game scenarios, they have highly militarized exercises that basically serve to increase the power of policing, to have them share and learn repressive tactics, tools, technologies that only serve to bring more violence into our communities. I'm speaking to Mohamed Sheikh. He's talking to us about Urban Shield. So this exercise can really have an impact on the way the way police treat people in their communities. So tell us about some of the consequences that you all foresee. If, if Urban Shield training does happen, you all have been fighting hard to stop it from happening. What are some of the consequences? Yeah, what Urban Shield does and what it serves is to expand the power of policing in our communities, to expand the logic of militarization not, not just of police, but also of all the kinds of agencies that are involved. And what we're really pushing back against is this idea that Urban Shield is a necessary kind of training for emergency response and disaster preparedness. And what we actually find when you look at Urban Shield and you look at the kinds of trainings that they do in Urban Shield, all of them have to have a nexus to terrorism because of the way that it's funded through the 
Department of Homeland Security, Security through something that's called the Urban Area Security Initiative, which is a counterterrorism program. Now, we see the danger of these kinds of programs. We have seen the harm that these kinds of programs in the post-9-11 era have had on communities, how it's expanded the surveillance state, it's given more power to police, and basically ended up in more violence, more people being shuffled into prisons. Now, what we're saying is that if we actually want to have emergency preparedness and disaster response, let's invest in those things. It doesn't have to happen under the umbrella of this highly militarized program. Actually, the two are mutually exclusive. You can't have what you're calling, you know, community preparedness and disaster response with a program that goes against all of the values of the city of Berkeley as a sanctuary city, as a program that increases, you know, the, the level of SWAT trainings that target immigrants, that target black communities, people of color, and so on. So you all have been fighting hard against Urban Shield, and there have been victories. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, so... In 2014, we mobilized against Urban Shield, and that year we were particularly focusing on the city of Oakland because since, since Urban Shield started in 2006, at least the Weapons Expo part of it was hosted by the city of Oakland at the convention center downtown. And so we mobilized and we pressured and we organized and got the city of Oakland to come out and say, we're no longer going to host this thing. So that was a, a big victory in and of itself. However, what they ended up doing was moving the, the expo to Pleasanton at the Alameda County Fairgrounds. And so last year, we organized a huge statewide mobilization that actually shut down uh, a large part of the expo, shut down the entrances to the fairgrounds and actually resulted in them not being able to conduct some of the exercises and activities that they had planned. Um, you know, this year we had San Francisco Board of Supervisors pass a resolution that called on Alameda County to end Urban Shield, to stop doing it. Uh, what we're working on now is getting the city of Berkeley, which will be holding a special session on June 20th, next Tuesday, to decide on whether they, as a city, will continue to participate in Urban Shield. And we're, we're really working to get them to withdraw. So how can people support? Like, let's say we have listeners here that live in Berkeley, or we have listeners that maybe just know that this is something that they want to keep out of their communities and they just want to do what they can. How can they support the efforts to stop Urban Shield? Yeah, I mean, first thing is, you know, visit our website, stopurbanshield.org. There's a petition on there that you can sign that is directed at the Berkeley City Council, um, particularly important for, for them to hear from uh, residents in Berkeley. Save the date for June 20th. We're going to be bringing uh, hundreds of people out to this special session that uh, we were able to get on Urban Shield, and that will take place at 6 o'clock. It will start at 6. Uh, we'll have a, a rally at 5.30, and it will be at Longfellow Middle School, which is 1500 Derby Street in Berkeley. So, Mohammed, a lot of people know Critical Resistance, but why don't you give folks a little bit of background on the work you all do and also about who else is part of Stop Urban Shield? 
Yeah, so Critical Resistance is an organization that works to abolish the prison industrial complex. We work to challenge and toward the elimination of policing, of imprisonment, and of surveillance of our communities. And so we see, you know, the fight against Urban Shield, which is a fight against the expansion of police power as one that is very crucial and important to our overall fight against the prison industrial complex. And we're part of the Stop Urban Shield Coalition, as you mentioned. Some of the other organizations involved include the Chicano Moratorium Coalition, which organizes here in Oakland. Uh, We have the Arab Resource and Organizing Center that is based in San Francisco that organizes Arab and Muslim communities around the Bay Area. A couple of different organizations that uh, work in solidarity and as a part of the liberation struggle in the Philippines and their their you know relationship to Urban Shield is to really draw the connection between you know imperialism and cross agency and and cross law enforcement collaborations that happens on an international level and so we have a broad range of organizations all committed to putting an end to such a dangerous program. So we've been talking, this whole show has been around state violence. We're going to be speaking with Olga Talamante, who suffered violence at the hands of the state in Argentina that was trained by the U.S. government. And a lot of people right before that big crackdown happened and the repression became even more intense, they didn't expect it. And here right now, there's been extreme crackdown. Why is this especially crucial now? Why is this work so important now? Yeah, we're in a... A political climate now with the you know president the the president being a blatant right wing racist very friendly to fascism and we really see these kinds of programs like urban shield as ones that are representative of the trump administration the dangers of what trump will what trump means and so what we're saying to places like Berkeley, who declare themselves sanctuary cities, ones that are committed to protecting and defending against the federal government's attacks on immigrants, on Arabs and Muslims, on people of color generally, on all you know marginalized populations and communities, is that you can't claim to be sanctuary while being a participant in this kind of program, because this kind of program is targeting the kinds of people in the communities that you are claiming to defend. And I think having Berkeley withdraw from Urban Shield in this political moment would set a very strong precedent in the Bay Area for other cities and counties to follow. And, you know, we see Berkeley as a a model, a place that other places look to for what, you know, resistance might look like, for what it means to, to resist locally the federal government. And so we find it really important right now in the political moment that we find ourselves in, to really take a bold and strong stance against the kinds of programs like Urban Shield. Thank you so much. And again, how can people find out more? Visit the coalition's website, which is stopurbanshield.org. There's a lot of information, resources, videos, contacts. So visit the website and get involved. That's Voice Mohammed Sheikh. He's with Critical Resistance. Thank you so much for joining us.
faster than the speed of light, brighter than the sun. Fall of Babylon, a new chapter's begun. Usher in a new sound, together we become Soltron. We strike as one. Faster than the speed of light, brighter than the sun. Fall of Babylon, a new chapter's begun. Usher in a new sound.
You're listening to La Raza Chronicles, Crónicas de la Raza. I'm Julieta Kuznir, and on today's program, we have a really important show. We're going to talk about a film that is premiering, a U.S. premiere, in one of our favorite theaters, the Brava Theater, uh, located in the heart of the mission. And the film I'm talking about is called Observando al Observador, and it is a documentary film and the film is about many things, but it really focuses around the story of the wonderful person that we get to have in our studio today. We are going to get to speak with Olga Talamante. Olga, thank you so much for joining us. Of course. Thank you, Julieta, for having me. Well, this film is going to be really incredible. It is based on your story and Patricia Herb's story, who were detained and tortured in Argentina during the Dirty War, as well as just the ways that this dictatorship has affected so many and the ripple effects that it's had not just on all the people that were personally impacted physically, emotionally, spiritually, but their children and generations to come. So it's a film that a lot of great conversation and it's something that not only is it really important for people to understand this history, but understand how it's not history. It's actually present every day. So Olga, I actually first heard about your story. My, my dad is from Argentina. My dad had to leave Argentina during this war since he was also, a lot of my family was impacted as, as you were um, during this time. But I her first heard about your story sitting with Bedita Martinez and having her tell me your story as it was part of 500 years of Chicana history. And for me, I just thought to myself, what? How did I not know that this? Because I'd heard your name as just a wonderful community leader, someone who's doing so much for future generations. But I hadn't heard the extent of all the things that you'd experienced because your trajectory of social justice's work has been so long. So you are someone who has been doing community work for quite a while. Why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about this film and how what it captures and what stories it tells? Thank you for this opportunity to want to let you know about the film because I think it's uh, it's a film that is important to see right now. It is a film about the role of the U.S. in supporting the dictatorships in Argentina for sure, but it also touches on the overall uh, southern cone. Uh, well, I guess the the, the whole uh, plan, which is called uh, El Plan Condor, uh, where the U.S. had such a complicit role in supporting the various dictatorships that coordinated in order to repress the um, the opposition throughout all those countries, Chile, Uruguay, Brazil, and so the the film specifically talks about the 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 support that the U.S. provided for the, the military dictatorship in, nine, in the 1970s. I was uh, arrested and held for 16 months uh, from 73 to 1976 as I had been part of a, the progressive Peronist movement that was taking place. And people always ask, well, how did you happen to be in Argentina <laughs> right at that time? And so I remind people that in 1973, there was a democratic opening in Argentina. So friends that I had met in Mexico that went back to Argentina at that time were writing to us, those the, the friends that they, they had made here, and, and myself for sure. And as a Latin American studies major, I wanted to go to Argentina and see the that populist movement that was making headway, that was making progress in, in Argentina at that time. So that's why I ended up, ended up in Argentina, you know, in, in 1973. 
and lived there for about a year and a half before then the crackdown on civil liberties in November of 74. And so then that's when I was rounded up with the other compañeros uh, with whom I was working and organizing in the poor communities of one of the uh, barrios in Azul in, in Argentina. So the, the film then talks about those years, specifically the, the uh, brutal repression, and by highlighting my story as a North American U.S. citizen and Patricia Herb, who also was a U.S. citizen. We didn't know each other, but the stories are, are somewhat similar. These two uh, U.S. citizens that themselves get to experience what thousands and thousands of Argentinians experienced, and not even to the fullest because we we lived, uh, we survived. And so it illustrates through that personal story what, again, happened to so many in Argentina. That's the voice of Olga Talamante. She's speaking about her own experience, and we're also talking about the film, which documents her story along with, as she mentioned, Patricia Herb's story, Observando al Observador, a documentary that is premiering June 21st. It's a really unique opportunity. It's only being shown once. So, Olga, you mentioned that this was something that you experienced that unfortunately you were not the only one by any means. This was something that impacted so many people in Argentina, but something that was very unique and pretty beautiful was to understand the solidarity and the international movement to highlight the fact that you were being held. Can you speak to a little bit about some of that and the role that maybe that that had? Especially here in the Bay Area, there was a just a strong, powerful campaign to gain my release. And uh, let me just say right now, and for those of you who may be listening who were part of those campaigns, thank you so much because um, that is what saved my life. There's no guarantee that I would have made it out of there if it hadn't been for the fact that my family and friends and so many people from, from throughout the state uh, of California and around the Southwest joined forces by writing letters, by doing rallies, by raising funds to get me out, to get me released. So the Solidarity Movement was very much, I can give credit to it, for for gaining my release. Let me just say a little bit about the filmmaker, who is a young Argentinian woman who wanted to make the film in order to make sure that her generation, who grew up under democracy, it was after the the dictatorships, she wants to make sure that this new generation does not forget and doesn't become ignorant of that past. And given that right now there are so many challenges in Argentina with the current uh, right-wing government, it is even more important to, to see this film both in terms of Argentina, but I also think it's very important to see it in the context of what's happening now. This is what happens when you start curtailing civil liberties. This is what happens when you start suppressing uh, freedom of expression. It is what happens when you start suppressing women's rights, students' rights, and for us, our immigrant rights. So it's a very topical conversation that we need to have. And that's why I hope that people do come to see it so that we can continue to engage in this discussion about analyzing and really 
figuring out what is going on right now, what are the danger signals, and what are we to do as a community. So I'm really glad that we do have uh, Larissa from uh, Carecen to talk about the, the Central American experience, Chelis from Capu, who knows very well the Mexican situation, especially with uh, the 43 and all the other disappeared and repressed journalists in, in Mexico. And we also will have Maricela Trevino Orto, who is a playwright that uh, has a a play that's going to be um, at Bravo Theater in July, uh, July 8th, as a matter of fact, and it's called Ghost Limb, and it's about the the story of a mother looking for her disappeared son. So it's 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 a whole uh, uh, conversation that we can have throughout the month of June and the month of July and try to understand how does that apply to our current situation and how are we to confront these challenges that we have now. That is an exciting panel. Uh, to remind folks, this is June 21st, and people need to buy tickets in advance. There's going to be a pre-screening reception. There's going to be the film screening and then the panel discussion with such a wonderful panel of people speaking to this issue from different contexts. So, Olga, as you mentioned, this is a time where people are very scared. There's increasing fascism here in the U.S. There's also, as we know, um, in Argentina, it's a very difficult time. People are unsure what's going to happen to social programs and social wins, etc. So, if we could just take a moment to, for you to tell us a little bit about what was the climate like before the intense repression that you experienced and that uh, when we're thinking back to 73, you know, the times where you were living in Argentina, did people, did they say, oh, this is definitely, I know that the government is going to react so so horribly and so cruelly to people. And did you get the sense that people were, were people talking about this as inevitable or were they afraid? Were they living underground at this time? What was the feeling? Because I think that Often when I talk to people, it's a sense of, oh, things were really, oh, your dad's from Argentina. Wow, things are really bad there. And I'm like, well, you know, we think about Oscar Lopez Rivera and all these other political prisoners that have been held for, you know, he was held for 36 years and 12 of those were in solitary confinement. And, you know, there are these terrible ways that people are being just disappeared through the prisons here in the United States. But um, how did people feel um, before this intense time of, of repression? As I mentioned, uh, when I arrived in 1973, there was actually uh, a lot of um, great uh, political activity. Political prisoners were being released. There had been mobilization. And uh, when I when I lived in Azul, there were all uh, these uh, folks that were rep- being represented in the government, compañeros and compañeras who uh, were now part of the councils and so on. So there was a lot of that activity, optimism, um, in, in, in popular participation. That's part of what we were doing in the barrios that, where we worked. It was to, one, ensure that, that services and resources were going to the poorest neighborhoods, and that's part of the work that we did, but also that people were mobilizing in their own interests. So there was a, a lot of excitement, a lot of optimism. When the civil liberties began to be suppressed and people began to see some of these signs. I remember hearing people and it just uh, sent chills (laughs) down my spine when I heard the same things here. People saying, pero eso no, eso no vuelve a pasar aquí. Chile had happened in, you know, in in September 73 and I heard Argentinians sitting around and saying, aquí eso no va a pasar. We have already gone through it, and there's no way that's going to happen. 
So when I hear some people talking about how there are some things that could not happen here, I get worried because I think we need to look at all the historical lessons and, and see. And, and in fact, what we saw was one of the most brutal, really dehumanizing, just horrendous wave of repression with new and invented ways of brutalizing people. So it's almost like, you know, anything's possible. And I think when when you mention you know what happens here, look at look at the um the <laughs> what's happened to our African American brothers and sisters and, and the wanton murder and and brutalization of, of that community. Again Everything is possible, and anything is possible. I think that we have the advantage of hindsight, and and we can look and learn from what has happened in this country, from what has happened in other countries. That's why, again, this films that is specifically about Argentina is important to see, and and again, begin to see the signs, to recognize the signs, and to know that resistance and persistence is possible and important in Argentina. In years past, there have been many cases, a few hundred, in fact, of military and police officers who were indicted because of the the cases that were brought against them and because people testified. And because of the kind of resistance movement that the Madres de Plaza de Mayo and the Abuelas de Plaza de Mayo you know, continued and made every present every single Thursday. They're still there every single Thursday in Buenos Aires uh, marching. So that example of how that persistence, that strength, of that legacy of struggle can accomplish things. And again, we have seen it in our own communities, in our ancestors that have struggled, you know, for centuries. And so we have to take strength in that and and know that united and together with solidarity with each other, compassion and love for each other and for our communities and for our organizations, we can resist and and, and create change, not just resist, but really go forward creating change. That's the voice of Olga Talamante. She is speaking to us about her experience and the work that she's done continuously so when you were released, Borfin, you know, after so much, you know, and you lived through so much and you finally returned home to so many people that loved you and were were fighting for your return as well, you actually continued along the same trajectory of work that you had been doing, which is work to make a more just world and your commitment to a vision that another world is possible, a better world is possible continued. So talk to us about that. I think that this is, even right now, I hear people saying that they they just feel like there's nothing they can do and they feel hopeless and they feel like, what's the point of being active if, if this is, you know, the political climate? You returned home after, you know, really surviving terrible things re- related to political repression. And instead of saying, well, I did what I could. I did so much for a better world and, you know, dedicating yourself to something else. You continued along the same lines of trying to improve conditions, social conditions. So talk to us about that that point and your trajectory around the work you've done. Well, I, I think that my being released um, is really a prime example of how every single action really has an impact and, and it can have an impact. It really was individual acts of people writing letters, in some cases writing a check, 
showing up to a, a rally, making the phone calls. That is what gained my freedom. Um, nothing else. The the U.S. government and the Argentinian government could have cared less about this Chicana from Gilroy. They grew up in, as a farm worker and was an activist and a troublemaker in their eyes. And so there's no way that there was no money behind us. There was no power behind us. There's no influence behind us, except for the fact that there was such a vast mobilization, thanks to my family and my friends. They're the ones who who really get the credit. And so I felt like here I had been saved by the these many actions. I, it never crossed my mind to say, I'm done, I'm not going to continue. Not because of, of, of honoring um, the um, those actions and, and, and that support, and also honoring my compañeros y compañeras in Argentina who remained in prison, many of them for many years. Some of them were released and then disappeared. And the only way I could honor that that those sacrifices and and those memories uh, is for me to continue to live out those values, those principles. In some ways, that idealism that is that's a beautiful idealism. That yes, that we can imagine that there is a better world. That we can imagine that uh, that wrongs can be righted, and that's the the capacity of a of, of a human being. And and when you think about like well, what propels people to act? It has to be the belief that that you are imagining a better world and that you can work to right those wrongs that are around you. And if you choose to live your life that way, then then that is what you're going to do, and you will continue to find those ways. So when I returned from Argentina, one of the first things that we did, we went to Washington, D.C., and we gave testimony to, in congressional hearings to say the military aid that you're sending to Argentina is being used to the the line item in the budget was interrogation techniques. Well, I, let me tell you what the interrogation techniques were. And so by having that personal testimony and that personal story, we were able to cut off the military aid to Argentina. Uh, that was in 1976. So we have to take those steps, and you have to look and see what is it that we can do. We cannot, obviously, we cannot do everything. We cannot solve everything. But yes, show up at, at the airport when there is um, uh, the, the Muslim uh, ban. Yes, show up at deportation hearings. Yes, you know, show up uh, at the Women's March. Yes, show up for science. And we all, you know, take turns and we all keep going and we all help each other be able to form actually our own wall, our wall of resistance. And at the same time, I'm so happy that the work that I do with Chicana Latina Foundation is totally connected to this narrative because I feel that we're preparing our young Latina leaders to be part of this resistance right now to go up against the many hurtful actions against our communities, and also to be the leaders that will need them to be to rebuild what is being dismantled. And that is the core of what we do at Chicana Latina Foundation. We work with Latina college students that are social service leaders, that are social change agents, and we provide scholarships so that they continue in their educational journey, they can complete their educational goals, and be leaders 
in whatever sector they choose to be in. And so it's it's just after 40 years, we are going to celebrate uh, 40 years uh, in September, our 40th anniversary dinner. So, but to see that we that we have the doctors that are working in the community clinics, that we have the artists that are working in making art for the movement, that we have the lawyers that are now doing the uh, the, the the hearings, um, supporting uh, those that are going to be in danger of being deported, that we have social workers and teachers and professors at the, at the universities, and that we are continuing to populate this the state with this new generation, it's a new cadre of Latina leaders, not only for our community, but for all of our communities, as we instill in them that whole aspect of, of service leadership. That's what our, our Leadership Institute is about. That's the work that we do on a daily basis. And if that's the little piece of the resistance that I do, then that's what I'm going to do. That's the voice of Olga Talamante. She is speaking about the Chicana Latina Scholarship Foundation that is much more than just a scholarship. So you just touched on that, that it actually isn't just, mostly people think about scholarship as, oh, money to support students continuing their education, which is key. Very important. It's essential. Um, my students, you know, I work with students at City College, and really, f- I think financial reasons is the number one reason why my students stop going to school. But I think that what's important to emphasize is the leadership development and the emphasis on community change and transformation. And the the leadership piece is, is really key. So from what I've seen, once someone receives a scholarship from the Chicana Latina Foundation, they are a part of this larger community, and they continue to be part of it. It's not just one night where they receive a check. It's much more than that. So why don't you tell us a little bit about that? I think uh, through the creation of the Leadership Institute, which started 11 years ago, uh, this, this will be the 12th year, we've been doing the scholarship for many years. And we we uh, we could see and, and we were told by the students I, I I want more when when can I get a mentor when can I talk to to those of you who are here and so on so we we started the leadership institute we have created a space where the the students personal story is validated uh, to the fullest our students are still going through the educational institutions where they are questioned in terms of their validity, whether they belong there, and and not finding enough um, role models and mentors and so on. So in order for them to be able to successfully traverse through the educational institutions, we uh, have seen that creating the space where their personal story gets validated, and that personal story we have seen is what creates that individual consciousness. And then when they share their story with each other, it becomes a collective consciousness. And collective consciousness is what leads you to social action and to a social justice agenda. So we always tell people, we don't have a hidden agenda. We have a clear agenda. And so by creating that very special space of validation and empowerment and sisterhood and love and and, and support, the students then go back to their institutions, and that's why we have such high you know, success uh, outcomes. So, for example, 88% of the students who are community college students in, in, our, in our program, 88% of them transfer to a four-year. 95% complete their BAs, uh, both at the state and, and UC systems. 
so people ask us, what is the secret sauce of Chicana Latina Foundation in terms of having this success? It is specifically this validation that the students receive and that are able they're able to carry that with them. And the peer network, the connection with each other, and to be able to see that these other mujeres are also going through the same thing that they're going through. And then to see the veteranas, like myself and the other veteranas around them, yes, we've gone through the same thing. I went through the same thing at UC Santa Cruz, very similar experiences. And we're here. We are here to to help you, to support you, and to help you be the leaders that we need you to be. Olga Talamante, something that people can actually get to experience when they attend one of your beautiful events. I've been to events where Fabiana Rodriguez spoke or where Diana Gamero sang, and it's just, it's a really heart-filling event, and also just a lot of hope to see all these incredibly powerful women that are just using this opportunity to just flourish and just everything they have inside them is really being honored and they're being able to use all those skills that they have. So why don't you tell us about the event that people can actually be a part of to not just hear about it, but see see some of the, the impact that this foundation has. Uh, thank you, Julieta, for, for sharing uh, your experience uh, in going to the uh, Chicana Latina Foundation annual dinner. Uh, so this year is a special one for two reasons. One is September 28th is, is when we're going to hold it at the Western St. Francis in downtown San Francisco. It is the celebration of the 40th anniversary of the Chicana Latina Foundation. It was founded 40 years ago, 1977, by three Chicanas at UC Berkeley who looked around and said, we need to help those that are coming behind us. And they just started working and fundraising a little money here, a little money there. They started the scholarships, probably $200, $500. And now we give 40 scholarships at $1,500 each. Some are 2000 some are 3000 That's all important support so that our students can make it through the educational journey. And at the same time then, being part of the Leadership Institute is the development of them as this new generation of service leaders. So come, absolutely come and celebrate the 40th anniversary of Chicana Latina Foundation. The second reason why it'd be great to see uh, so many of you there is because I am announcing my retirement uh, from Chicana Latina Foundation as the executive director. I will always be around and be, and be part of, of uh, Chicana Latina Foundation. So proud of, of what we've accomplished. And, and now it is uh, time for someone else to come in and take it on to the next level, to take it on to bigger and greater things. I firmly believe that that is absolutely possible. It is time for new leadership and new energy to come. And I feel really, uh, really, really glad and, and really clear about that. So uh, at the end of the year, I will be retiring again as the executive director of Chicana Latina Foundation. And so it will be a big pachanga to celebrate uh, CLF and to uh, it will be my my last dinner as the executive director, let's say, of Chicana Latina Foundation. And, and, and very pleased and, and very honored to be able to be in in this uh, in this stage of my life where I feel so grateful to to have done this work with Chicana Latina Foundation and so honored to pass it on and and have someone else come in and again like I said go take it on to bigger and and, and greater things and I will be here to support that. 
Wow, that is huge news. I'm sure that even though people are very happy for you, the energy and commitment that you've had, they're just, you're going to be so missed. So uh, how can people actually buy tickets and how can they in general, let's say someone is listening and they live in Sacramento and they maybe can't meet the dinner, but they really want to support the Chican Latina Foundation. How can they do that? Absolutely. All of the areas that we work in, we also, we have workshops in those areas. We have students uh, and now that are alumni that, that are in, in those areas. Uh, we hold gatherings, comadre parties. So uh, get in touch with us. Just go to chicanalatina.org. And of course, there are phone numbers and uh, email addresses. Just go to our website and get in touch with us. And that's how you can also find out about the dinner. The tickets will be uh, going out uh, soon, and, and they'll be available on, on, on the website. And I mentioned that we have alumni throughout. But the beautiful thing about this is that it's all coming full circle, Julieta. We have about 600 uh, Latinas out there who have received the scholarship. 400 of them have gone through our Leadership Institute. So we have graduated 400 Latinas through that uh, educational and, and leadership process. And now they're coming together to form the Alumni Association of the Chicana Latina Foundation. And aside from doing career development and uh, partnering in terms of social activism and so on, they are fundraising additional funds to give more scholarships. So last year, we were able to give 35 scholarships instead of just the 30 because the alumni raised enough money to give five more scholarships. This year, they're raising enough money so that we can give 40 scholarships. And that is so beautiful to see. So because when someone supports the organization that has supported them, then you know that you've done the right thing. And so that's one of the greatest legacies that I am happy to leave, which is that the Alumni Association of Chicana Latina Foundation is alive and well, and is getting more established. And it, they are part of the future. They're part of leading the organization. We have three alumni that are on, on the board of Chicana Latina Foundation, and so they have been part of this whole process, this whole transition process, the whole succession planning process, and of the formation of the Alumni Association. How exciting. That's really wonderful. 40 scholarships. So people can find out more at Chicana Latina Foundation and they can go to the website and people can also see the film Observando al Observador. Muchísimas gracias, Olga Talamante, por estar con nosotros y compartir con nosotros de todo tu trabajo. It is really, really inspiring to hear all the wonderful ripple effects and impact you've had all over the world. Muchísimas gracias de nuevo. Julieta, eh, con mucho cariño, muchas gracias por tenerme aquí y eh, espero verte y ver a muchos el, el 21 de junio uh, y, y también el 28 de septiembre.
plantita, plantita, amiga, ayúdame a curar, plantita, plantita, Thank you so much for listening to La Raza Chronicles. We'll be back next week. Palante.